Divisoria is typically it's the hotbed for trade. I bought a five peso worth of stickers. That's one pad. I cut it out so that I can sell to my classmate 50 cents, one peso. What kind of animal is this e-commerce that all of your stocks can be sold in one day? That was the key inspiration for me to really learn, study e-commerce during that time. That's why we, there were a lot of uh, realization regarding money, regarding business, because we have a change of faith that we want to live for the Lord and we want to make an impact to our generations. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Today, I'm speaking with Steve C. Steve is the founder and CEO of Great Deals E-Commerce, an end-to-end Philippine e-commerce enabler that helps global and local brands sell and grow online. In 2021, they raised the $30 million Series B. This episode is a whirlwind of a story. When they say it's tough to be an entrepreneur, Steve's story is the perfect example. There's hopelessness, and a lot of perseverance in learning. Find out how he started Great Deals, his most stressful time as a founder, and how he raised funding, even if he didn't know much about setups, tech, or VC at the time. Hi, Steve. Nice to meet you. It's great to finally get to speak to you after all this time of seeing you. Yeah, it's really a pleasure, Amanda. Thank you for this opportunity to be able to share my story also. Yeah, I've been seeing you so much that I've accumulated a lot of questions about you. But I think the first question I really want to ask is, you know, what was it like growing up? I know that a lot of Chinese families in the Philippines are always involved in the business side, and I'm sure you were as well. But I want to know, like, what was your first venture as a kid? What's the earliest inkling of entrepreneurial spirit that you have that wasn't influenced by your parents? Like, when did you tell yourself, oh, I think I do want to start a business, not just because my parents told me to? (laughs) My first, how did I earn my first peso? If that would be the question is when I was in grade two, I need extra allowance because I was trying to buy, you know, additional food from the canteen. So what I did is I bought a five peso worth of stickers. That's one pad. I cut it out so that I can sell to my classmate 50 cents, one peso. So they'll buy it. So I'm going to earn around two to three pesos from that venture. And I've been doing it, you know, constantly. But the truth is, because I want just to buy Bazooka Joe Wonder Boy. <laughs> those are the things that, you know, simple things that I've been doing. So those were, that's that was my first, I would say, my first selling venture. I'll just go at the front of our school, buy the whole pad at five pesos and then cut it out so that my classmates can afford the thingy thingy speaker. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was very innate in me at a very young age to be entrepreneurial, to be in business. So from stickers to erasers to sweet chili sauce to purifiers, I've been selling a lot of things. Even my first manufacturing, I say manufacturing, was SIPA. You know, the SIPA toy. Yeah, the game. Mm-hmm. When I was in grade four, I sold some SIPA also. No, because I saw, I, I said, this is, I saw something from our, office yung one of the parts that is needed for a SIPA. And I said, oh, can I just have this? So I just bought the yarn, manufactured then sold. So so you technically manufactured it on your own without a factory. You just got the parts and you assembled the different parts of the toy and then you sold it. (laughs) So I think that was innate in me. I've never been employed, always been an entrepreneur. So even at college, I was selling watches and t-shirts while I was in LaSalle. So, makapalat talaga makako. Even Lasalista, okay, no problem. We just keep earning it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, I, I remember I listened to a bunch of podcasts about you and you said that you also worked with your parents' business early on. Is that where you would get all of the you know, stickers, the toys, and all these other products so that you were for, selling? We were in the textile business. So, every summer, when I was a little bit older around high school, I'll be a part-time sales agent for them. 
and they'll give me a commission of one peso for every one yard of textile that, or fabric that I'm able to sell. So I just go around Divisoria offering our goods and then I get a commission for that. So and- I have money for, for other things, accumulating some savings. How about the products that you were selling in grade school? Where did you get the erasers? Where did you get the stickers and all these things? Did you ask your parents to source them no, for you? Did you find them? Well, you know, we get Ang Pao. So I have yeah. some. And then I just go at the front of the, the school. Basically, I'm buying it in bulk and then selling it at retail. Oh, so that okay. I get- so you buy it from the bookstore near school and then sell it. But it's quite expensive for yeah. one student to buy. But if you cut it, it's affordable. So most yes. of my classes buy at one peso or 50 cents. But if you have to buy the whole sticker pad, it's around five pesos. Yeah. So that's how so, Singapore is doing it. So once so, a week, do it so that, you know, they have enough stickers to play with. <laughs> but, so you you would use the money you would get from like your Ang Pao, your red packets, and then you'd buy it. That's why you have lots of sort of upfront cash. Then you get to buy the products and then you sell it to your classmates who otherwise wouldn't get to buy them. And then with the profit, I didn't reinvest it. I just use it to buy more snacks during the... <laughs> yeah. How, how was it like with your classmates then? Were you popular <laughs> because you were selling all of these items? I can't remember. That was eons ago. <laughs> But I was a nerd. I think uh, growing up, I really liked studying. I was a, the nerdy type of guy. But I do have that inclination of really doing business at a very early stage. I think influenced by my parents was been doing uh, business in Divisoria. Mm-hmm. How would you describe Divisoria to people who don't know what Divisoria is? Divisoria is typically it's the hotbed for trade. So if you need Anything from China, right now it's China. Before there were more imported goods that are, you know, coming from Divisoria. It's the wholesale capital of the Philippines, I would say. Every need, there's a lot of items in Divisoria that you can buy. Textile, fabric, toys, artificial plants, clothings. So all of these are in Divisoria. Even general merchandise are available in Divisoria. So most of our, even our online sellers now, most, I think, I would say 70% of goods goes to Divisoria. I remember going there several times when I was younger and it always looked like such a busy place. Like every time I passed by, it's like throngs of people and it's really hard to go through the halls. So how was it like actually like selling there when you were in high school? It looks very competitive as well. (laughs) Because we have stores in Divisoria. Mm -hmm. My parents do have fabric stores in Divisoria. So for me, I really grew up there. So it's part of, you know, way of life that, you know, I've gone through there. First eight years of our life, we live in Tondo. So every day I go through our store. Every summer, when I was still very young, my parents will train me to man the store and they'll give me one peso a day mm-hmm. plus merienda. <laughs> That's a lot of benefits, right? Food and money. <laughs> food so it needs to have food <laughs> so i can order then i'll stay and man the store so that was the training i think that was a training in the visoria mm-hmm. but as i said it seems like very competitive there are so many stores there's so many people buying and selling always looking for a good price if you don't have it they'll probably go to the next one right so what's difficult about the experience sort of selling there and manning the store at a young age I think, you know... Or was it not difficult? <laughs> difficult? Because, of course, in terms of business, you need to have a certain proposition, a unique business proposition for your clients also. So there's a lot of retailers in Divisoria. So one thing that you can do is you can become a wholesaler and then sell it to them at retail. So I think that's the business of my parents. They'll import at wholesale and then we sell it at retail to resellers in Divisoria. So during that time, there's no online. So everybody has to, you know, just use food traffic in terms of uh, getting customers. And because it's a very big area, there's a lot of opportunity for people to do business. And during that time also, goods are not readily available for everyone. So you really need to look for it and find it. So if you have a good taste, for example, we're in fabric, you have a good fashion sense, then your products will sell. Got it. And what was it like, like when you're sitting there manning the store, what was your day-to-day like? Is it you just waiting for people to come and buy things or would you always be busy looking for something to do? So for me, 
when I was older, I can go out and offer our products already. Going to the Divisoria. So I will go two rounds, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. So that I'll be able to talk to the owners of the of the stores and offer them my goods. So most of the time my work is outside of our store. Mm-hmm. So I just go to the and I don't really speak very well, so I just always smile. <laughs> Try to charm the older Tito and Titas to <laughs> to buy, buy your products. <laughs> when I brought my brother, he, he was telling me, I is not doing anything, he just keep on smiling and just telling the price. <laughs> 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 well, I guess presentation matters. <laughs> yeah, so I think those were the earlier years. So I would really go around the Visoria twice in a day so that I'll be able to get all of the customer to be able to show them the goods that we have offering. And I always do it at least four times a week so that you don't overwhelm them with the products that you're offering. Every time they, they see you, there's something new. Oh, okay. But we don't put... Like if I have 12 designs, two designs for this day, another two the next day so that they can keep... You always have things that engages them every time. <laughs> so those are the days in Divisoria. So, but when we're in the store, so there are clients that come to our mm-hmm. store. Most of the time, it's more of my mom's is in the store, but I'm going outside offering yeah. our products. Then my parents are in the store. They're the ones taking care of the clients coming in. Was it always like a lot of long-standing old clients or were there a lot of new clients coming in regularly? What I'm not sure what kind of business it was where you have long relationships with a lot of the same clients or was it sort of like a chase to always find new ones? <laughs> so for, uh, for Divisoria, there are always new customers that are coming into the stores. But for me, I just go around. These are long-standing clients because they already have stores in Divisoria. And it's very hard to get a stall or store in Divisoria. So I think that's the two main difference uh, that we have. So that's why it's a very vibrant place because there's a lot of new people coming in and discovering Divisoria. And at that age, when you were selling in the Visoria, if I asked you what you wanted to do when you were growing up, you would have probably told me that you already know you want to do business, right? But at that time, would you agree or no? I would agree because I always have a goal of becoming a millionaire at a very young age. So really? I told myself, I'm going to be in sales so that I'll get commission and then earn it. So I To think be a millionaire. Did you know what kind of business that you would do in the future back then? Or did you just have a goal? I want to make my first billion really quickly. Yeah. So that's why uh, when I was in LaSalle, I have this goal. So I started selling watches and t-shirts. Yeah. And the watches I, I, I remembered was I was selling knockoffs of Swatch and Benetton. <laughs> How much were these knockoffs versus the real prices? <laughs> I, I forgot the Real price, but I'm selling them. That was this was a year late 1990s. I, I think ni- early 1990s, 92, mm-hmm. 93, 91. So I was 1991, 92, 93. I think you just you were just born right, most probably by that during- in that time. Yes. <laughs> so I was selling Swatch at 180 pesos. Oh, okay. Selling Benetton at 150. That's like less than five dollars each yeah. for those. Yes. Uh, they were, and I was able to find people from the province to buy a book. Oh, so you were not selling in, in the university this time you were I actually know, selling. But, you oh. know, too few, not enough volume in the university. So I have to look for ways to then found some wholesalers from the province that I'm able to sell the 200 pieces okay. that the business is worth doing. Yeah. So during that time, that was my goal. That's why I was able to earn my first million at age 20. How long did it take to, to make your first million selling watches and t-shirts? I think that was maybe less than two years. Less than two years. Less than two years during that time, yeah. So How before, did you? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Uh, my goal was to have a million peso in my bank account by age 20. I think that was my goal during that time. So I was really, you know, on focus mode to really hit my target, hit my goal. And we have a lot of reports that needs to be done in LaSalle. So I even hired my first assistant along Estrada, my typing assistant. Because, I, you know, during the time, we were still using typewriter in the yes. report. 
So I have a typist to do all of the reports. So I already contacted her that you can do all my reports so while I'm doing this so that I have time to do my business. You basically outsource your homework to, to the typist so you can focus on your work. Typing, not the homework. Just, so you do the homework first and then you tell her. I cannot type fast. So all of these pages, okay, this is what you're going to type. I'm just going to get it, then pass it to my teacher. <laughs> so you do the homework ahead of time and then you just give her what to type so you don't have to waste time typing. Gonna take me eons to finish it. So I think that was my quote unquote first employee to be to be you know, to be able to. So she has a typewriter. She just just typing jobs four pesos per page. That's, oh okay. So it's worth it. Right? Four pesos per page. Okay, go. I'll earn it. You have enough money more to be able to pay her, and then yeah, same have enough time because if I'm gonna type it myself, it's gonna take me you know the whole day. You won't have enough time to do your business if you have to type it all yourself. And it's smart because you're not really doing, you're not doing plagiarism. You're doing the homework on your own. It's just the typing. Yeah. It's just the typing. Because of and, course, mm-hmm. if she's going to do the homework, I, I might fail. <laughs> <laughs> four pesos per page is not going to give you good homework. <laughs> four pages just for typing. Yeah. For the watches and the shirts, how did you think of selling those? And how did you know that this is what I'm going to do to make my first million? I think I was going around Kiapo. That was in Kiapo. Mm-hmm. I visited one of my aunt's store and saw the the Benetton watches and swatch watches. And I said, these are nice. So I bought some, sold it to my classmates, and they were buying it. And I said, I, this I could be a business. And then rather than selling it at retail, I was able to look for people that have connection in the provinces and I sold it to them. Yeah. So I'm just earning maybe. 20 to 30% wholesale price markup. So it's still very cheap than typically the stores that... They, so I was able to find the right supplier that really imports all of these swatches. And mm-hmm. I think that was the key thing. So even my price, if even if they go to the Bisoria, they'll be... Your prices are better. The prices would be better. So <laughs> that's a very key thing. And I'll, mm-hmm. I'll use that LRT, go from TAF, going to Cariedo, go down order all the watches and then go back to school. <laughs> Would you do this during like school hours when you don't have a class or before the classes start in the day? Both. No? Both. Both. Yeah, I think both. So during break, but did I cut class for that? No, not really. No. It's more of during the breaks. So maybe in the morning before class and then if you have like a lunch or afternoon break, most then the you would go out. Most, most of the time it's going to be lunch break or afternoon. Because the stores are still closing in the morning. Oh, I see. I think that's really interesting. You found the right supplier that even if people went to Divisoria, where most people assume the lowest price is there, your prices are actually lower than Divisoria. Or in Divisoria. That's why I'm able to offer it. And at the same time, my customer knows that I have stores in Divisoria. Uh-huh. My parents have stores in Divisoria. So in terms of branding, they know I ha- I'm a Divisoria guy. Yeah, they trust you. That's maybe the price. And they are able to sell the watches in the provinces. So the business grew. And then so I would things so that, but the t-shirt, I was having problems because I have to bring it back. It's bulky. So I really concentrated on the watches. Yeah, I was about to ask that. I, I was going to ask, like, did you have like two bags, like one bag full of watches and one bag full of t-shirts? And then you have your school bag in your back. <laughs> Is that how you look like? Yeah. So the t-shirts, because I was having a hard time, so the t-shirts, I'm going to buy it at the end of the day so that when my driver picks me up at La Salle, I have the t-shirts, just put it there. I don't need it to bring it in class. Mm-hmm. But the watches, I can bring it anywhere. That's why it's easier. Yeah. Also. And you were probably selling the watches at the university, but the t-shirts for mostly for wholesale? Yes, for wholesale only. Yeah, because yeah, it's too bulky to bring in school. <laughs> I was amazed because... People in La Salle, even though they know it's a knockoff, but it's so nice. They just, oh, Benetton, Swatch, they'll use it cheaper. Yeah, and at the same time, like if everybody's wearing the knockoff ones, I guess nobody finds it weird anymore. (laughs) It's not like they're the only one. Nobody knows the knockoff. (laughs) They just know when they see the price that it's a knockoff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you look at it and when you see other people, it just looks really nice, I guess. (laughs) Definitely, definitely. So interesting. I know that there are people who have sold knockoffs, but they sell it at like the original price and some people just get scammed. 
What I like about everything that you've said is that no matter what way that you've been doing business, you've always done it fairly in your own way. Like you're not cutting class. Everyone knows it's a knockoff when they see the price. Um, You don't plagiarize when you hire the typist. (laughs) You get kicked out from school if you do that. Yes. (laughs) But I think it just shows that you've done everything in a more ethical way. For my customer, of course, Swatch and Benetton, not really. (laughs) For for them, no. But in the way that you've been treating your customers and the way that you dealt with school while running your business, you never cut class, you don't plagiarize. Your customers know that it's a knockoff and they get a fair price, right? That's right. And so what happened after you made your first million? How did it feel to have a million pesos in your bank account? Was it overwhelming, underwhelming? And what did you feel after? The feeling was, of course, I'm so happy when I got it right. But then I had a realization. At the age 20, Amanda, I had a realization. I was looking at my passbook, mm-hmm. one million something. And then I said to myself, is this is it? My next goal, five million, 10 million, then what? So I was really, parang, I would say it was, it's an empty goal for me to have that if it's just going to be finances. So that was my. You know, I was really looking for something much more deeper than just earning millions during that time. So that was my realization at age 20. And I said that, you know, life is more than just about making money. And the Lord will not, you know, ask me when I go to heaven, you know, how much is how much money is in your bank account. Yeah. And that was my realization during that. And, you know, but still I like doing business. But it's not about just making money anymore. And I think that's the key important thing that happened to me during that age. So that I will not just be so greedy of money, money, money. Because realizing it that, you know, at a very young age, I got my, I'm a millionaire. So I said, when do I become a billionaire? All of these things. But does it really matter if you have all of these numbers in your account? Without having good relationships, without having, you know, a balanced life. So I think that was a key thing for me when I hit my first million. Then what did you want to, to change? Or what did you do after? So, well, what happened was our house got burned. Oh, I see. So, of course, my parents told me uh, we need help in the family business. Yeah. So be able to, you know. So I think it shifted my focus on helping our family business during that time. So that we'll be able to, you know, it was a very traumatic experience. The of course. That we're leaving, I was sleeping on it, got burned 2 a.m., right? In, so you're in the house at the same time? Yes, we, that's, our, that's the house that we're living on and got burned down. So it was very traumatic during that time. But that was, I think that was, a, so I know that I need to support and assist my parents in, you know, bring back all of the things that needed that needed help during yeah. the, I was we were six in the family and I'm the eldest. So typically, you know, the panganay in the Chinese family always goes to the family business. Yeah, usually the oldest one inherits the business, especially if it's a, a guy and that's that's you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, it's quite a different here because when I got married, I said to my parents that the Bible teaches us that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Mm-hmm. And I told them, for me, you know, leaving the parents, not just physically, mentally, financially, emotionally. So I said, I want to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. And I have so many brothers. I told them they can take over the family business. Yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. So uh, they allowed us, they allowed me to go on my own path during that time. When you asked to go on your own path, how did they react? Because I think that even back then, that's still a bit of a different or uncommon decision, right? Or not really? Well, it is a very uncommon, but I think uh, because uh, from from the 90s, we had a change of faith. You know, I became a Christian. My, 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 family, my siblings became a Christian. My parents became a Christian during that time. So we were following biblical principles in terms of setting up a good family foundation. And they understood what it means to live and clean. Mm-hmm. And 
to have our own, you know, be, be our own king and queen of the house of our life so that we still honor them, but we have to have our own path. And it was much easier also because I have so many siblings that can take over the family business. So it yeah. was really a concern for them because there's five more waiting. <laughs> so, yeah. Why did you guys have a change of faith? And it's interesting because the whole family did have a change of faith, not just you and your siblings. So it start, I think uh, it started with, uh, I was the first one who, you know, who got to know Christ in the family. And I think they saw the change in attitude towards me. So that's why most of most of my my siblings was able also to accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then my mom was the next one. And then because of you know certain uh situation in the in the family, my dad also went, you know, uh seeking seeking the Lord. So during that time, uh you know, there's a lot of things that was happening, but one thing for sure that uh, God has been faithful to our family, that he has so much miracle, miracles happened that we are able to follow him. And I think that's a major critical uh, point in our family's life that we were able to seek the Lord, found him, found peace in him. And that's why we there were a lot of uh, realization regarding money, regarding business. Because we have a change of faith that we want to live for the Lord and we want to make an impact to our generations. So you mentioned that when you made your first million, you felt like you wanted to do more in your life than just, you know, keep making more money. Was that before you found your faith or after? Uh, that was, I already found my faith. Got it. Okay. Why I was I was in the process of learning the Bible during that time. That's why when I got my first million, it doesn't really have instilled so I would say parang kulang I mean kulang it's still that's not a, enough mm-hmm. you know not you know you're happy you're smiling but then that's it you remember you Amanda, felt like you need more you know, Amanda when when I got my the 30 million dollars investment right yes with great I, deals seriously of course when I when I received the money in my bank account I look at it it's one billion something, right? Yeah, it's one billion something pesos. <laughs> something. Of course, my smile is this smile. <laughs> but then afterwards, what is what does it really mean? The money yeah. compared what you can help our country, how we can uplift Filipino lives. Those are the most important thing. Money is a fuel for your dreams, for helping people, you know, impacting lives, enabling dreams. Money is just a fuel. So that's the same thing that I think when I got my first million and my first billion, I think those were realization that the money is just money. It's just a few well. It's not the yeah. end. And I like to share this to all the entrepreneurs. When we're doing business, we're you know making solutions for our clients. It's more of making, you know, having an impact in your generation that will, you know, help bless other people, enable other people to you know, live a life that is not just for themselves, but for others also. And I, when, mm-hmm. for a company, we really speak volume of our mission to uplift Filipino lives through the digital economy. And so you mentioned that you realize that maybe money is shouldn't be your goal. Like before it was the goal, you want to earn 1 million pesos. Mm-hmm. Then you maybe thought you'd want to earn 5 million pesos after, but after actually making that money, you realize that it's nothing if you don't have a goal or an impact at the end. Yes, definitely. What kind of impact do you want to build towards now? Uh, especially after all of your experiences, you made your own millions in pesos, you've raised millions in dollars, which is over a billion in pesos. So what now after building all of these things do you want to achieve, I guess? I think, uh, I've been sharing this story to even to some of my interviews regarding desert experiences where you go through life, like life in a desert experience. Like I haven't shared this to you, Amanda, but I also got into debt. Mm-hmm. I was in debt for 12 years before I found my promised land, if you will say. And I think that's the lesson that I like to share to all entrepreneurs that life is not just going to be easy, you know. 
because of business decision, because of greed, even though I was already in the Lord, I got into a very, you know, big amount of debt. With two kids in my, I have a newborn and I got in debt for 32 million pesos. 32 million pesos in debt for 12 years. I was 28 years old Hmm. when I had that debt. And it was hard. For 12 years, it's going to be very hard because you're just paying your debt for the last 12 years. So you know, maybe first year, second year, third year, but you get you lose inspiration, you get depressed on your fourth, fifth year because you've seen your friends are, you know, achieving, uh, leveling up in life, but you're still paying your debt. But I was still hopeful that the Lord will one day bring it back. But I, you know, my prayer is, Lord, don't make it like Moses desert in the fourth years. Maybe Joseph went in twelve years, twelve <laughs> years of yeah. Uh, I would say hardship during that time. Mm-hmm. Prepare me for what's in store for me for great deals. Got it. And it's very important to to all entrepreneurs that you know all of us wants to be wants to earn fast, wants to you know be the best, be successful. But I think a lot of people, if you will see most famous people, they have to go through hardship before they make it because that's character development, character yeah. for us. And even for startups, those are the things that, you know, we need to sometimes learn for us to really make it. Yeah. And those are the things that I would like to impart to the next generation of entrepreneurs. What kind of faith do you need to have, you know, to be able to make an impact, not just only for your family or for yourself, but for your employees and for the people that are around you. And I think that's the important thing for me. It's not about after having all of this, it started even way before. I've been mentoring, discipling people on how to do business, even when I was not yet successful. And I've been sharing to them that you have to go through this also because these are the things that will help you build your adversity quotient. So that when time comes, when big problems comes, it's nothing because you have already, you know, practiced. Face adversity. Face adversity at the, you know, at its scale. And no adversity has been given to us by God that we cannot conquer or chant or overcome. You know, it's a promise from the Bible. So we should not lose hope. And I was thinking before 32 million, how could I pay all of this? You know, but right now it's just one purchase order for our company. And I was telling my wife, honey, look, oh, that we never know how can we be able, if it's going to take me a lifetime to pay all of my debt, I was thinking, during that time, but you know, that's why e-commerce was quite a blessing to me because it was something that God has used for us to be able to overcome my debt and you know have a better life for my family also at the same time, have an impact to because I was in Divisoria, Amanda, for so many years. Yeah. My business is Divisoria style. When we yes. say Divisoria style, you don't pay taxes. Yes. <laughs> You don't pay taxes when you're in Divisoria, right? That's why everything is cheap there, you know. But as a believer, I said, I want to honor God. Lord, help me. Give me a business that will honor you. Yeah. And when I set up Great Deals, I said, there's going to be only one book. I'm going to be very intentional. I'm going to pay my taxes. And you know the beauty of it, Amanda? My company became investable because I was paying my taxes. Yes. Remember that? So... It was a good intention just to, you know, give honor and glory to the Lord. But then because of those things, because of your decisions, then the company became investable. Right. So I got my financial institution investors because I was paying my taxes. If yeah. you have tax liabilities. After all these years. <laughs> you have tax liabilities, they won't invest, right? Yes. So that's the key. And, you know, a few years ago before the pandemic, it's really hard to find, you know, investors because the investors are having a hard time looking for investable companies. You said that you were in debt for like 12 years and that's 32 million pesos. That's practically a lifetime of debt, right? What were the hardest times? Were the hardest times like when you would finally make a lot of money and then you just have to tell yourself, okay, I made this much money. I'm happy about it, but I just have to put it back into paying the debt and then I can't The hardest really... time is when you have... You know, your your creditors would call you up 
Yeah. Asking for money. So I had my table and chair in my house during the time that, you know, one of my aunties that I owed money, she, mm-hmm. she got it. And I said, okay, get it because I cannot pay you. And those are more of the visual things that really impacted me. That someone has to get my table and my chair, which is made of Nara. I really love that table and chair. So, but because, you know, I don't have enough money to, to pay them, they have to get it. I have to buy NFA rice for my two daughters. What is NFA rice? NFA rice is the government rice. It's for people that doesn't have money. It's very cheap, but that's the only way. But the quality is not good. That's why it's NFA rice, mm-hmm. uh, supported by, subsidized by the government. And those were the things that, you know, no budget really, because you were in debt, you're paying out your money. So I think those were the hard times. The harder times is more on the longevity. Maybe you're, okay, I'm going to do this first year, second year. But when you go to your fourth, fifth year, ah, so depressing already. You know, you, you won't, you're not able to buy a new car. All of your friends have new cars. You know, you're not at the same level with them anymore. So it gets depressed. <laughs> but, you know, I'm thankful that I have a good solid support from my wife and from good friends of mine that was always encouraging me that life goes on. There's always hope with the Lord. And those were the things that, you know, kept me going during those tough times. And then how did you get out of your debt? I think you mentioned that it was great deals that helped you get out of it, but how did you start really paying it off? So I was in the, so during that time, I was in the insurance industry for 10 years because of course, insurance, you can sell life insurance without any capital, right? Yeah. I was using insurance to pay off my debt. Mm -hmm. And then I found the, then, you know, I found the opportunity that if I can buy products from China and sell to the Philippines, it's going to be better. So I sold my agency. When I sold my agency, I, you will say it's my first exit <laughs> <laughs> company. I got enough capital to go to China and do the trading. And then I was using, I was doing cell phone accessories during that time. Then I found out about e-commerce while I was doing my trading business. How did you find out about it? Was it in China when you saw e-commerce <clears throat> or you had uh, e-commerce? Uh, no, I, I was... I, I was a supplier to Ensogo, Cash Cash Pinoy, and Groupon. Do you mm-hmm. remember those days? Yes. Infancy stage of e-commerce where there are deal sites. Yes. So uh, I was the first one to sell power banks in Ensogo. Oh. And we did 1,000 plus in just one deal. And I think that was the... So, but it's more of a supplier. So I was, you know, uh, supplying them goods to sell on their deal site. So that was the infancy stage during the time, 2014. But then by 2014, Lazada was there. And my purpose was just to move some of my slow-moving product. But then November 11, the double-double sale of 2014 came. I have a few thousand power banks in my warehouse. Yeah. Boom. Sold in one day. Everything a, sold. A few thousand all sold on Lazada. Yes. And... For me, it was, oh no, I don't have stocks for Christmas already. I have stores, <laughs> I have stores in Glorieta and Greenbelt and you know, I have offline stores. And I said, oh no, this is a good problem. It's <laughs> a light bulb moment. What kind of animal is this e-commerce that all of your stocks can be sold in one day? Yeah. That was the key inspiration for me to really learn, study e-commerce during that time. But it was an accident, right? You just wanted to sell a few extra stock and you thought maybe I'll try this Lazada thing and see if I can sell it? I think uh, because Lazada's business model was quite different. Before you have to bring their goods consigned to their warehouse. It's uh-huh. not the Lazada of today. So it's quite oh. Then they shifted their business model. Then I came back because they shifted their business model to drop shipping. And then, okay, we can try it now. So I think it was, uh, you know, the business was also evolving so fast during that time. Got it. And when you sold those few thousand power banks, was that 
in the initial business model or the the second one, the dropshipping model already? The dropshipping model already. Oh, okay. So you've tried it before, like Lazada oh. and then... Yeah, was... I tried it early on. It's not moving and everything. So I pull out all of my stocks. They were paying 60 days, 90 days. Like, uh, like you know, uh, it's a different business model during that time. Mm-hmm. And they shifted to dropshipping. And you're lucky that you tried it again when they shifted the business model. Then it worked. He told me there's something new in Lazada. You have to try it. Oh, it was your brother. Yeah, who encouraged me to go back. And then it worked. And then after it started working and then you ran out of stock for your offline retail stores and other platforms, what did you do? (laughs) You know, I I just like to share, Amanda, during that time, Mm -hmm. so that was November, right? All of the sellers have a big headache. There were so many returns from the Oh, really? Why? The Sada wasn't the Lazada that we know today. They were also a startup during that time. So all of us were very worried if they will survive or not. <laughs> oh, if Lazada would survive or not at the time. So you, you cannot put all your eggs in one basket during that time because their payout is only 80% of what you you really need to receive. So okay. you have always, you know, there's there's always a typical startup. Yes. So the only time that I really had faith in Lazada was when Alibaba invested in them. Oh. And then I could say, okay, Jack Ma can pay me now. I can sleep so. <laughs> so now you could focus a bit more on Lazada and not then be so worried. This is a very crucial part. I made a conscious decision to close all of my offline stores and just focus on e-commerce. And those so platforms I, that you focused on were Lazada and what else? During the time, it's only Lazada and Zalora. Oh, wow. So you closed everything except Lazada and Zalora. I closed all of my offline stores. Uh-huh. So I have a few offline stores. Then I closed them down. And then, boom, concentrated solely on online. Shopee came in afterwards. Also, concept, you know, everything online. I think that was a key major thing because... I have limited resources during that time. And I just said, okay, put all of my resources on e-commerce because I think this is going to be the future. And it is the future. So made a big bet on that. <laughs> what year was that when you shut down all your offline stores? 2016. 2016. 2016, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then how did that transition to Great Deals? So 2017 set up Great Deals as company already. Mm-hmm. The truth is, when people ask me, why did you set it up? Because L'Oreal, the one that I teach, said, we only deal with corporations and not single proprietor. That's the real reason. Oh, because one of your clients said that they won't deal with you if you're not a, a corporation. <laughs> Sometimes uh, those are the you know simple things that you know, you're know you doing business and oh, what's needed, let's do it. Yeah. And then it benefits you in the long run. <laughs> And then what happened after? Like, so did you only start with a few clients with great deals or with these gone already? When I, I I was able to share to you the the November 11, 2014. Yes. So I was still at, you know, I was having my stores in the mall. I'm doing bazaar. So during uh January of 2015, I was at the bazaar. Mm-hmm. The store beside me was selling virgin coconut oil, Giga. And they oh, were yes. Very well. They were selling very well. And I told them, okay. And then I saw the signage open for franchise. So I wrote yeah. the owner and told him, Can I be your e franchisee? Oh. I'm going to open a physical store, but I'm going to open an online shop. And what was their reaction? He agreed because he doesn't know anything. He's, you know, he's quite old. So he doesn't know anything about online. So he said, Sure, you can be a franchisee. Open the online, online shop. Yeah, so technically he was my first client. Oh, okay. That was the and concept of becoming an e-commerce leader. And that was 2014. 20, January 2015. Oh, 2015. So 2015, you got your first client for this sort of like e-commerce fulfillment, sort of e-franchise business. And then how did you transition to it? Because you don't know the word yet, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then got uh, my first multinational company was Reckitt. They were oh, Rex, Lysol. So we were given that opportunity to, we didn't even have an, a contract with them. Oh, they just give you the supply? 
2016, I was still a single proprietor. And Reckitt doesn't, doesn't accredit single proprietor. They want corporation. But they were having problems with their e-distributor during that time. So they gave us a chance. Oh. We, we just buy it, just a commercial term, buy it, sell it online. Yes. We were able to grow that business 500% in five months' time. In five months only. So that was our, wow. you know, whoa, road to fame. How mm-hmm. can, you know, a small company able to sell Reckitt and grow it 500 times? Yeah. And then we started pitching to, so that was December 2016. So 2017, because of the growth, we were got notice by the different brands. We started pitching and we got L'Oreal 2017. CLN, JAG, because we also have a product called a store named New Year Sneakers. We were selling sneakers. We were awarded by Lazada as Online Revolution King of Fashion 2016, number one fashion brand in the Lazada platform. We were beating SM Store Online in Lazada, Bench and Pen Shop. Yeah. And it's just your little business, right? To them versus uh, these big companies. Yeah, it's an unknown brand. It's a purely online brand that we developed. So we were a case study how we were able to grow this into the number one fashion brand in the Lazada platform. So with that results, we were able to onboard more clients. Yeah. Yes. And then set up our corporation 2017 and then the rest is history. Yeah. So that became your expertise. So it just started with a few clients and just really trying it out. And then later on, I guess you realized you were good at being an e-distributor. I think because, for example, L'Oreal was the number two health and beauty brand. Yeah. But by the end of the year, working with us, they became the number one health and beauty brand. Mm-hmm. So after 12-12, when results came out that they became the number one health and beauty brand, after two days, Procter & Gamble called me up and said, "We would can you share to us your services? <laughs> then. <laughs> so we can be number one again. <laughs> so they got our service. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, what was it like to build all of this, though? This is a lot of, like, you know, stocks coming in and out, a lot of people to coordinate with, a lot of numbers as well. So I assume it's very, very, very hard. So what did it look like building this business in the earlier days? I think the one principle that I'd like to share, too, is the principle of building capabilities. Mm -hmm. So there's a story in the Bible of the calling of the first disciples. Peter John were fishing the whole night and they caught no fish. Mm-hmm. Jesus came to the shore and they and Jesus told them, put your nets on the other side of the boat. And Peter told them, teacher, we fish all night, but because you say so, we're going to do it. And lo and behold, they caught so huge of fish that their nets began to break and their boat began to sink. They caught yeah. up their boat and both of their nets began to break and the boat began to sink. And when they came down, they, you know, told Jesus, you are Lord and everything. So what can we learn from that Bible passage or from that story? Number one is, for me, you need to know who your master is. So who's the expert in fishing? The fisherman, Peter, John, or Jesus the carpenter? Of course, Peter, right? But because yeah. he the master is, he, he obeyed it. Now, building capabilities, question Amanda, do you think they can still add a kilo of fish on their catch or not anymore? I don't think so. Yeah, because the nets are gonna break or the end yes. shoot. So it's a mat, it's not a matter of is there enough business, but it's a matter of how how good is your capabilities. So for me, I learning that lesson that the nets is our processes. And the ships is our resources. I need to keep on building our capabilities because this is an ocean of opportunity. There are a lot of fish. But then if I'm, I have just a little boat and little net, then that's the only business that I'm, I'm going to have. So from 2017 up to today, we're building capabilities, building big, stronger nets, bigger boats, so that we'll be able to catch more fish. And I think that's the same principle that we have in terms of scaling up fast, growing your your business, because we're building capabilities. 
on all fronts. And I think that's the mindset that we have as a company when we're building our business. So that's how we look at it. A lot of problems, of course, because you're building, it's like you're building an airplane while flying in. That's how it feels. <laughs> it's like you're doing all the construction while driving your car, right? So a lot of challenges, definitely. But, you know, people are inspired and motivated, you know, to make an impact for the Filipino generation. That's why we have a lot of, you know, breaking the glass ceiling for our company, for our country, so that we'll be able to, you know, not just for ourselves, but for more Filipinos to be able to inspire, to be able to enable dreams and make an impact to our generation. I think you mentioned earlier that it's important for anybody building a business to develop their their way of handling adversity. And I think you definitely face a lot of adversity, especially being in debt for 12 years. But I think regardless of how much adversity that you've tried to overcome in the past, there are always going to be more difficult times, right? Or just tough times in general. So when you were building great deals, what were the times where it's like so hard that you feel like giving up even though you won't? Are there examples of those that you've experienced? Yes, I do. This is 2018. Lazada birthday sale. Okay, let me share to you. So that was April of 2018. So last December of 2017, we did around 15,000 orders for one day, one five. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, okay, 15,000 orders, most probably we'll have 15,000 orders, right? Because Christmas season, that's the peak. We prepared for 15,000. Yeah. Then the birthday sale comes. You know how much order we received? 30,000? Almost 50,000 orders. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was, a, you know, at 2 a.m., I, I still remember the L'Oreal people was in my warehouse. And they were telling me, Steve, are you not happy? Are you not happy? Because the seal was huge. Yeah. My smile was, I was smiling, but I was thinking, I have a problem. Yeah. How do I fulfill it? I didn't prepare for almost 49,000 orders. But I only prepared for 15,000 orders. That's three times. So clients, customers will be piece off. The platforms will be piece off. My main client will be piece off. All of these things. So we were not ready. So that one week, one week, I think my hair grew white for, a, for the whole week. <laughs> we need more manpower. We need space. We need all the things that we so. What we did as a team, all of us, from accounting to my kids, to my mate, to our, everyone was just picking and packing. Oh, so you brought everybody. <laughs> Anyone willing? Everybody. I even asked all of the brands that were working with me, I need extra people. Can you bring them to me? I already asked for SOS. Help me out. So even L'Oreal's team coming in, Lazada's manpower coming in, I posted in Facebook. Salary, just packing with free la- with free meal. <laughs> it was organized chaos, I would say. Yeah. It was organized chaos. Sleep, I think I was just sleeping four hours a day. Because uh-huh. we were operating 24 hours. And still, we need to finish everything. We were able to finish it in one week. Mm-hmm. And... There were a lot of lessons, but during that time, I thought I'm going to lose this client already because everything was blowing up. Yeah. But thank the Lord, L'Oreal still will ask up to now. <laughs> our lesson on forecasting, supply planning, and we have been good at it. Mm-hmm. Been very good at it. So, yeah, those were challenging times, really challenging times in terms of I thought I was losing gonna lose my biggest client during that time and because like, they're, mm-hmm. they're the head office even the manager of L'Oreal were picking and packing right? <laughs> even the manager <laughs> even the managers are picking because they brought in their people and they see there were still a lot of things that need to be so all of them help out so I think oh no I'm gonna lose this client already. yeah so the biggest problem is the lack of people or is it also like you need more stock, you need more logistics services, or what's the biggest problem with the people? The problem was we don't have the space for all of these people that is because oh. you, 
it's 15,000 orders preparation to four. It's like you need three times the space. Yeah. Right? And during that time, nobody has done that much order. Nobody knew that, you know, e-commerce is going to blow up. Mm-hmm. So that's the main key problem. But afterwards, everything was easy already because we always plan ahead. Yeah. Okay, uh, how many are we forecasting? 200,000 orders. Let's prepare for 200,000 orders. Uh-huh. In two days, three days, we'll be able to finish it. And then how did you go from bootstrapping the business for, I think, four years before raising money? I think, you know, you probably never raised money before with any of your other businesses. So what was it like? So I think it's more of when, you remember when PNG called up? Yes. They said, Steve, for you to be able to get our business, you need 40 million pesos. You have to buy inventory. You have to build your warehouse capabilities and everything. I didn't have 40 million pesos because I already have L'Oreal in my business. So no yeah. extra money. So I had I was in my crossroad moment during that time. Do I accept P that this was clear to me, December of 2017. Mm-hmm. I told myself, am I greedy? Or is this an opportunity? Because of course you have to always check your heart, right? Because I've learned my yeah. lesson where I was greedy. <laughs> and I get all of this business and then what to do with it, right? So but then the Lord has instilled in me. I've given you this talent. Do something about it. Like the parable of the talents, right? If you're given three goals, you develop and, you know, produce it and enable it. So I was at peace. So I asked my mentor, my disciple, okay, do I go get a loan from the bank or do I get an investor? And he told me, Steve, it's going to be very hard. You're building your business and you're going to pay interest and there's bank. It's going to be so stressful for you. Get an investor, a good one, that will not think of the money so that you can build your business. So I got my first angel investor uh, February of 2018. He invested 20 million pesos. Wow. So that was my first investor. So that's how I got my angel investment. I just have a Excel sheet. Excel sheet. This is my forecast. This is the money. But we're not going to do dividend. We're going to do the valuation play. And he agreed to invest in, in my company. How did you know um, about this angel investor? Did you know him before? Or were you looking for angel investors? Well, you know, you have friends that are quite rich, right? So I went to those rich friends of mine that did not <laughs> ask me for how's my money for every month, right? So I, yeah. I pitched them that I have this business. I already have L'Oreal. I have already wrecked so PNG wants to come in, but I don't have money. And you so, needed 40 million pesos or 40 million dollars? I forgot. No, peso. During the time, it's still peso. Still pesos. Million. Okay. <laughs> so he invested uh, 20 million and he was my first angel investor. But then the, the other parts, I was able to, you know, make room for uh, getting some loan and everything. And then that was the first that investment was, that you made. And second, you received... My seed investment was, this is quite a great story also. So one of my clients, Barbie, so we were distributing Barbie shoes. It was doing good. So the owner asked for a meeting, for a lunch meeting. Yeah. So, so okay, sure, go. And then I'm, mm-hmm. I'm going to share to her how we're going to continue to grow the business, right? That was my, my thinking. But she asked me a question and she asked me, Steve, are you looking for an investor? And I said, this is the exact word I said. Yes. Something. <laughs> sure, but he said yes because, of course, who doesn't want? <laughs> who doesn't want an investor <laughs> at that point? I was caught off guard because I was thinking that it's going to be a business review. Meeting, yeah. But then it's more of like she wants to invest in the company. So they invested 50 million pesos into our company. Wow. And then how did that go from that to the... No financial statement. Oh, okay. So my angel and my seed are very close to me because they believe in our business without even, there were no FS. They weren't really looking at the numbers or really checking anything. I have numbers, but there's no actual accounting. Oh, okay. I would say due diligence for that part. And it's quite a huge money already, 50 million. Yeah, definitely. So. Then how did you get from there to this, the Series B investment? So after the seed, I had my Series A. 
right? Which is Navigar. That was one month before the pandemic. They invested. And it was quite a journey. I think we we were the first Series A investment that has more than $5 million for the Philippines. Yeah. It was really quite a huge, uh, I would say, uh, impact to the startup community. They've never seen such, such kind of a big investment uh, for a startup. Yeah. And for for us, it gave me trauma in the due diligence. <laughs> That's the truth. So, <laughs> so much stress and trauma. Uh, I think if I'm going to share that story, it's going to be another hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next time. <laughs> but, you know, it was quite a blessing because it's one month before the lockdown when we got mm-hmm. the money. And we were able to use that money to really grow exponentially. Mm-hmm. So we grew so fast. We grew from, from 1.1 billion to 4.4 billion. That's 4x in a year. 4.4 billion orders or? Revenue, revenue. Revenue. So that was quite a year that we had. And that's why we raised our Series B because we were running off money because we were still growing. You're going too fast. <laughs> well, we were going too, yeah, we were growing too fast. Of course, when you're growing too fast, there's a lot of things that, you you know, uh, a lot of concerns that's happening. But then we were able to close our Series B funding uh, 2021. So it's a, it's, a good, uh, it's a good thing. But it's another story because, you know, <laughs> fundraising is going to be a different story on how you really Look for your investor, the right investor, how you go through all these uh, negotiations, due diligence, all of these things. What are the most difficult parts of building the business now? I think, you know, it's all post-COVID. There have been a lot of changes, maybe. Sorry? It all boils down to people. Everything is, you know, you live and die with with the people that you have. Mm -hmm. And I think for all businesses, whether it's small or, or big, it's going to be the people that are managing the business. I think you need to, you know, build a good team for you to be able to level up. And there are a lot of businesses you need to make. So you so you will be able to level up your business. Also. Are there ways that you so feel I think like the you hardest part to, is, mm-hmm. you know, you have Go to ahead. get all of this. As I say, when you're building a dream, when you're building a dream team, there are a lot of egos. And you need to, you know, manage, lead this great people that are better than you to the same direction and vision that you want the company where to be. And what's been like a mistake that maybe you have made in building even great deals now that maybe you would give some insight into? It's also a people problem. So many mistakes already. (laughs) I think mistakes is what keeps you, you know, what mistake, a dying mistake. Or maybe your biggest mistake in the back of your mind. Well, the one that, open to share. <laughs> one that I shared that I almost lost my client was, you know, we were not prepared. We didn't mm-hmm. in the right way. I think uh, right now we're we're almost always, you know, very good at forecasting our supply chain because there's a lot of factors, uh, cash flow management, you know, inventory health, people training, so many factors in business that you really need to look at. So it's not true, guys. If you raise money, that there's gonna be less work. There's more work. <laughs> <laughs> so I think mistakes. I think the important thing is, even though you make a mistake, you acknowledge it and then you move on. So mm-hmm. we've opened up business units, we close out business units. So we lost money on some, earned money on some. So yeah, I think that's the I know Amanda. I guess to close, I just want to ask one question that I'm asking everybody else I'm speaking to for this, which is outside of work, what's one thing you want to accomplish with your personal life? It doesn't have to be something you have to accomplish this week, this month, or even this year. But in general, outside of work, what's one thing you want to accomplish in your personal life? Personal life, it's, you know, for me, I have four daughters. And of course, so I'm... I'm the only guy in my family. I have four daughters and my wife. And I think being the best husband and father to them is more important than being the entrepreneur of the year. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's very hard to, you know, they're growing up so fast. 
and I want to have the best for them, for daughters. So I'm preparing that they'll have suitors. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we have this kind of relationship that's very open, transparent? And I think those are the key, more important things for me to build this relationship to my daughter so that they will find the right uh, suitable partner for them in the future. Because I totally believe that, you know, they will leave us one day and hopefully they find the right partner as they move on with life. And of course, when they leave, we become emptiness. I need to have my a good relationship with my wife because success is nothing with if you don't have success in the family. And I yeah. think for me personally, that's what I've been striving for. That's what, you know, intentionally, uh, you know, having a date with my wife uh, spending time with my kids is important for me. Not only for me, even for my management team, I always encourage them to have family time. Because why are we working? Because we want to have a good family. We want them to be comfortable in life, but also challenging enough to make an impact in our generation. Yes. That's I cool. really like that. I think a lot of the times you see people doing business and achieving great things, you think they have to make a lot of sacrifices, but you're always trying to manage and balance being able to make time for everybody else. But when you've gone through debt and your wife is with you for the longest time, <laughs> you'll be more, you know, I really appreciate uh, her support because she was there with me when we were really down and out, right? Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve, for, for sharing everything. I think you're very, very open with a lot of the different things you've experienced, and I've definitely learned a lot. I followed your story for a while and heard a few of these things before, but I've still been surprised throughout the whole conversation. <laughs> Surprise, ma. <laughs> Surprise in a good way, of course. <laughs>